The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Namaste and good evening to all of you. It is slowly becoming a tradition that in the first evening, in the first satsang of every of the seasons, I will hold a speech which is a sort of a welcoming you to a tantric school. I'm holding a speech of what the nature of the tantric yoga and what the nature of agama yoga really is. Of course, you are going to the yoga courses and you see there approximately what is happening, what this kind of yoga is, especially those of you who have attended more than the first level and you are going to the second level, third level on, you know a little bit what is happening and how this yoga looks, how it feels, how it works. But in this satsang, I'm going to a much deeper level. I'm going to make you understand some things from a metaphysical, philosophical level. It seems that uh, we don't need to go to the level of philosophy because we are practical yogis and we do the practice and we understand some of the main ideas, keep everything as simple as possible, focus on the practice, obtain results, and that is it. The truth is that the human mind needs some sort of philosophy. Even if you believe in chaos, you still have a philosophy. Even if you are a punker, you still have a philosophy. It may be a rotten philosophy, but you still have it and it guides you. A great philosopher of the 20th century said it wonderfully in one of his works. He said, philosophy is enjoying a privilege which not even science enjoys in this world or other disciplines. It governs people's lives and actions. Like the fact that you have a mobile telephone or you have you are using electricity or not is governing people's activity less than the fact that you are capitalist or communist or fundamentalistic Christian or something like this. People's activity is entirely governed by their philosophy. If there is a weird feature of the human mind that when people differ in philosophy, they become extremely touched by that. If any one of you uh, is against uh, electricity and you want to live like the Amish, and your neighbor doesn't believe in your stuff and doesn't want to be Amish and plentifully uses electricity, you just shrug your shoulders and you think the other person is different. But in the moment when people think, oh, Jesus is the Messiah, no, Jesus is not the Messiah, it's a false prophet, one of them takes out the gun and goes boom. In the moment when people think, I want communism, everybody should get equal money, no, I want capitalism, I want everybody to have different money, somebody takes out the gun and goes boom. People get irritated by philosophical differences, the mind, the beliefs of people matter way, way more for people. You know, look at what's happening in this world. People have philosophical differences and they do a million and one 
things. I could give you examples non-stop till midnight to show you how people, just because of philosophical differences, they are strifing with each other in major, major ways. That's why the same thing appears in spirituality. In spirituality, if you don't understand the actual metaphysical basics, if you don't understand the philosophy behind all that, then you are not going to understand what is really happening. I say, what is tantric yoga? Because tantric yogis are supposed to apply some different values and some different goals than other yogis. No? I, would, I was telling to somebody today who was coming from a Buddhist environment, what, do you, what would you think about the issue that you could, for example, make love in a Buddhist temple? And she said, to me that sounds inconceivable and as a terrible blasphemy because you are not even allowed to show your nakedness in front of a Buddha statue. Funny thing is that there are Buddhists who do make love in Buddhist temples. The tantrics of Tibet in Vajrayana, they consider absolutely nothing blasphemous in the sexual act. And even the deities are depicted in sculptures and paintings in sexual union. And that's just another branch of Buddhism. That simply what I'm trying to say is that in spirituality, people are not the same. They are not the same at all. What is blasphemy for one is divine for another. What is acceptable for one is unacceptable for another. Christian mystics were okay with a little glass of wine every day because it opens slightly your heart chakra and it's good for prayer, not to get drunk, but just a little bit. And in Buddhism or other places where they worked on the third eye, they said, no, alcohol is going to ruin your brain and it's damaging your third eye. And there are religions like Islam or others where alcohol is banned 100% absolutely. For some, alcohol is okay, at least within some norms. And for others, it's completely on the blacklist. That's why to understand what the story with tantric yoga is, to understand why tantric yoga is tantric yoga, you have to understand where the whole caboodle has started from, because otherwise you won't understand the justification of all of it. Of course, if I say, what is tantric yoga? Many people are tempted to believe that I'm going to bring up some of the stories about sexuality. The sexual part of tantric yoga represents about 5 to 10% of the big compound of tantra, and therefore it is not my main focus tonight. There are many, 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 many things which are called Tantra and they have nothing to do with sacred sexuality or anything close to it. So no, today when I say what is Tantric Yoga, I'm talking about the full concept, the integral concept of Tantric Yoga, Yoga of the Tantric style. What is that? Because we are talking about a Tantric mentality. We are talking about a Tantric philosophy. There is a tantric way of looking upon the world, of looking upon the human being, and of looking upon spiritual practice. Here in Agama, we believe that the tantric way of looking upon the world is the best. 
it's the most complete. It, of course, our, we are not uncontested. There would be many people who would contest and say, you guys are a bunch of heretics or whatever. I'm not having the claim to be universally accepted, but everybody is living within the frame of their system. And at least in Tantra, there are arguments for what I am saying here. My statements may be big, but they are totally justified metaphysically. To understand what is happening, we have to always start from the basics. The very word Tantra is, in Sanskrit language, the meaning which is often, most often quoted, like if you read serious books, because I meant, I met books and discourses of people who are more or less jokers and they were giving all sorts of ridiculous definitions. The actually scholarly Sanskritological definition of what Tantra is, the word Tantra is translated as warp, like the warp on a loom. For those of you who are not of English language and the world, the word is mysterious, the warp is the crisscross thread network which is on a weaving loom when you make cloth. Whenever you make cloth, there exists a network of threads, and then the cloth is weaved on those. It's like the backbone of any cloth. And as soon as you get a piece of fabric, you don't see that in this one there is actually a primary network, like a skeleton of it, which was there before it was weaved. That skeleton of it is called... It's a warp, and the meaning is exactly this. You look at the, at the nature, you look at the universe, but this universe is held together by a skeleton, which is invisible like the human skeleton is invisible. And yet it is this skeleton which keeps the whole universe together. And this skeleton is like an invisible web which crisscrosses the universe and connects everything with everything, in an idea which is a little bit like a holographic reality. There is a beautiful Arab proverb which uh, illustrates this in a poetic way. It says, if you cut a blade of grass, the whole universe shudders. Because the universe is connected to the blade of grass. The ignorant person never sees it. Sometimes the poets, the artists, have a sort of an intuitive perception of the unity of all things, but they still cannot put the finger on it, on like exactly what it is, because they perceive it only with the right brain hemisphere, and they cannot rationalize it with the left brain hemisphere to bring a complete integral picture of it. Tantra did bring that. So the tantric tradition is a tradition which simply says we start from the idea, from the view, that everything is connected to everything. And thus, everything matters. You cannot brush anything under the carpet and say this is ignored. In a holistic reality, nothing can be ignored because everything has a function or a connectiveness with everything else. The tantric tradition has been generated or has been built around some sacred texts which were called precisely that, tantras. Like either you talk about uh, 
Mrigu Tantra or you talk about Damaru Tantra or you talk about Prasna Tantra or you talk about Vigyana Bhairava Tantra or you talk about Netra Tantra or you talk about whatever, Vakchandra Tantra, there exist Tantric texts. Indian philosophers are very perfectionistic in their numerological approach and they always try to find perfect numbers like uh, there are 64 lovemaking positions in Kama Sutra. I mean, really, if you, if you squeeze your mind, you could find 65, really. You could invent another one. And if you really study the 64 positions, you are going to find that at least 10 of them are just millimetric variations from some of the others. But they strained themselves to make them 64, because 64 is a privileged number, right? Is 8 times 8 is a real numerologically significant number. So in this way, in India, everything is significant. There are 12 uh, main nadis or meridians. There are uh, 84,000 asanas. I would like to see those 84,000 asanas invented by Shiva. Like, how can a human being put their body in 84,000 different positions? Only if you consider every centimeter of a movement, this is one asana I'm showing you now, and this is another asana at the time. Then there are 84,000, but it's not because of really there are 84,000. Because 84 is a lovely number because it's 7 times 12 makes 84. They are crazy about numerological things. So in the same way, there exist 64 classical tantras. The scientific reality of today is much more dreary because the tantric tradition is pretty messy and there exist parasite or vernacular tantric texts which don't belong to the main trend and uh, out of the 64 main ones many of them seem to have never existed or they are lost by today and it goes on like this it doesn't matter there is a corpus of tantric texts and this has become the tantric tradition. So the tantric tradition is coming from the tantras. And these tantras have complicated in time because approximately in the 10th century, Tibet has started importing heavily yoga from India. And then they started translating many of the yogic and tantric texts of India in Tibet. And this is how there appeared the so-called Buddhist tantras or Tibetan tantras, which form a parallel tradition. So they are Hindu tantras, Tibetan tantras. They constitute traditions, and those traditions is those traditions are very fuzzy. Try to realize today people cannot make order in India, in a country, in a subcontinent like India although there is instant communication by radio, television, and all the rest. Imagine what was in the 10th century, when the only way to communicate between the south and north of India was by horses. There was absolutely no oneness of any kind. Everybody did whatever crossed their mind, and from east to west and from south to north, as many people, as many opinions. That's why the idealistic belief of some people that the once upon a time there was a sort of unitary thing and they all had a pope or a patriarch 
and everything was canonic and everything was done exemplary and same, same, is just a utopia on Zvadistana. It has nothing to do with reality. In reality, the tantric tradition developed very freely, very independently, and it still became a wonderful tradition, and it still contains an amazing degree of oneness and coherence in spite of this difficult communication. The tantric tradition, among others, developed what is called a, a tantric yoga, like the tantric people also wanted to practice yoga. In India, where yoga was known as one of the paths of reaching divine consciousness, then the tantrics have said, we want a piece of that. But as soon as they laid hands on yoga, they turned it into their way. They tantricized their yoga. They created a tantric version of yoga. And that's why, please remember that the tantric yoga is uh, something else than the classical yoga, for example. The classical yoga is centered around the main text of the tradition, the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. In India, many, many people, tantric yoga is something else. Tantric yoga is not too much interested in the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. Not because Patanjali was not good or he was not right, but he does not explain and teach things in a tantric way. Like he never says, for example, he speaks about concentration, meditation, contemplation. He speaks about samyama. He speaks about all the things of the mind. And he never mentions for a second that all this is governed by an energy which comes into an energy center which is four centimeters away from the bone of your forehead and which has 95 rays of energy, 96, I'm sorry, spokes of energy. For the tantrics, this is very relevant, this engineering thing this technology that there is something here and that it can glow and it can be buzzing with energy, this is very important for the tantrics. They look into these technical things. The tantric yoga from the very beginning had a very big inclination towards engineering, towards technology, like things have to be accurate energetically, technically, while Patanjali while he mentions that there are asanas, he never mentions a single asana in Yoga Sutra. Okay, there is posture of the body. Which are the postures of the body? Well, you have to wait for 16 centuries and to go to Geranda Samhita, which describes the 32 main postures of the body used by the yogis, the 32 main asanas. That's the tantric tradition. Geranda Samhita is a tantric yoga text. It's not a text of classical yoga. So classical yoga, for example, does not use the body almost at all. That's why, remember, tantric yoga is an alternative, is another creation of the Indian genius of spirituality. India has been enormously creative in this way. It fertilized Tibet, Nepal. It fertilized the giant tradition and others. There are influences of the Indian spirituality in Burma, in Thailand, in the Khmer culture of Cambodia and so on. The Indian spirit in, all the way to Bali and Indonesia. The Indian spirituality has been very, very powerful in creating a lot of things. And one of them was that even in yoga, 
it did not create just one alternative of yoga. It created classical yoga. Then much later in time, around the 7th century, it crystallized and it became strong around the 10th century, the famous Vedantic yoga, because the Vedantic philosophy emerged powerfully together with, with uh, Adi Shankaracharya, and then the Vedantins also wanted to do a yoga, but the Vedantins wanted to do a totally different yoga, because the Vedantins thought that the body is maya, and therefore it's a big obstacle and enemy, and therefore the Vedantins created a yoga in which you are meant to torture your body and cause pain in it and mortify it so that you demonstrate the power of the spirit over the body by simply capping the functions of the body. So classical yoga is not like Vedantic yoga and none of them is like tantric yoga. Even tantric yoga has sub-varieties. You are going to hear that in the second part of my lecture where I'm going to tell you that we have those sub-varieties here in Agama Yoga, and uh, that makes our system very complete. That's why, please understand that different methods will involve a different philosophy and a different lifestyle, and it all comes from the metaphysical angle, and it came time for me to briefly tell you. We have a special course in the second level of teachings of Agama where we approach this technically in the yoga courses, but this is something which everybody should know. If not for anything else, then for your general culture. Like it's something, if you are interested in spirituality, it's one of the basic things which you should not miss. Everything, all these differences in philosophy, why tantric yogis are different and they do other things, it comes because they have a different metaphysical angle to reality, universe, human being, and evolution. And it all starts from the analysis of reality. I'm going to be brief. I'm not going to extend this too much because otherwise I'll not reach to the other points which interest me here. But the drawing which I made there illustrates the classical division of reality depicted in a peculiar way. That's an image which we use in Agama. You will see this at least 20 times where you are in Agama. We use it often when we come to remind to people, please remember about the metaphysical basic things. Like this is going back to the origins. It's going back to the roots of the whole thing. All the spiritualities of this world, I would not say all the philosophies, because for example, Marxism as an ultra-materialistic philosophy would not accept this duality. But all the spiritualities of this world will accept this division. The difference is not coming if it is so or not. The division is coming from the relationship which exists. All the spiritualities will admit this. Most yogis, Taoist masters, Buddha himself, you name it, Christian mystics, they all of them admit to the fact that when you meditate, when you contemplate on reality, reality appears as primarily made of two things, of two basic things. And those two basic things are, in the Western philosophy, spirit and matter. And they seem to be like oil and water. They don't combine. 
If you are spiritual, you are not materialistic. If you are materialistic, you are not spiritual. Spirit runs away from matter. Matter imprisons spirit. Matter is heavy and dense. Spirit as quick and immaterial and light. And so on and so forth. There are 100,000 things. And if you look a little bit in your subconscious mind, what the collective subconscious mind has put in there, religious education, family, society, exception made of the last 20 years, which have become rabidly materialistic, even in the West, generally the idea is that, okay, we always thought that spirit is good and matter is really not good. Spirit is the thing, like, what is God? God is spirit. Is God matter? No, not in the Western philosophy and not in most of the spiritual philosophies. Those two in India, in classical yoga of Patanjali, they have been called by the classical names Purusha and Prakriti, the first two names on that list. Purusha means exactly that, spirit, person, the cosmic person, and Prakriti means nature. It is still used in Ayurveda, the word Prakriti, to describe the nature of your body. What is your Prakriti? Because you are a microcosm, and then we can decide what is your Prakriti. But Prakriti also applies to the whole macrocosmos, and then it's about the universe. It's nature, mother nature. Prakriti and Purusha, in 90-something percent of the spiritual philosophies of this world, are considered to be the mortal enemies of each other, and not mutually cohabitating with each other. Like either you are spiritual or you are material, there is no way around this duality. It's like a seesaw. As soon as one becomes predominant, the seesaw tilts on the side of that one. If they are always fighting with each other, they are always complementing each other. These two polarities, therefore, have a different value and in most spiritualities, the purusha, which is like the male thing, from where there comes the dominance of all the male values in all the traditional religions, the purusha, which is the male patriarchal aspect, is the one to be aimed for. The statement, which is not wrong, of the Vedantic and classical yoga promoters is, you are now in prakriti, and you have never seen Purusha. Purusha is your immortal soul. If you would feel your immortal soul, your life would be completely different and you wouldn't do some things and you'd do so many other things. It's obvious that you can feel your fingers, you can feel your emotions, but you can't feel your immortal soul. You don't even have a clue if you have an immortal soul. That's why, of course, all the philosophical debates on this issue. And therefore, it's time to go to your immortal soul. You spend 5,000 lifetimes in matter, maybe you will get the momentum that in this life you will give at least one life to your immortal soul, which simply means don't be materialistic, be spiritual. Turn your back to the world, turn your back to the body, turn your back to matter and to energy, perform incredible feats of asceticism and renunciation, and reach immortal spirit. I'm not saying that the method doesn't work, because it did work for thousands of years, but the philosophy behind this statement is skewed. Clear, clarified it in a lecture many years ago, when he said, let's suppose that this is 
matter and out of this yoga holy spirit and you have been here for the last 6,000 lifetimes in matter even when you die you don't go into spirit you go in the astral world which is a more subtle form of matter but you are still in prakriti even when you are dead you don't escape from prakriti ever in this way and i have been out there i'm the only buddha here and i have been out there and i'm coming and telling you you should really see spirit and i can't convince you because all of you are satisfied with what's here and then i decide to cheat you and i light some things some cloth and i make a lot of flames and smoke and i scream fire fire free the hall and you run like a herd of animals through the door out and when you'll be out you'll discover there was no fire it was just a white lie i don't know how white but it was a white lie and then you are going to be grateful to me because i kind of pushed you against your own will into spirit that's a little bit how this method is it declares that matter or prakriti is a boogeyman from which you should be afraid and you should run for your life to spirit because that's where immortality is and does it work it works it worked for thousands of years people got afraid of hell perdition chaos samsara whatever and they ran to the opposite buddha himself has called the two opposites nirvana which is the absolute thing and samsara which is the wheel of eternal rebirth if you don't do anything you are going to be reborn until you freak out one day we hope you are going to just get bored of all this and try to go to nirvana so nirvana is good but samsara is bad according to this philosophy the vedantins did the same thing the vedantins called the absolute consciousness brahman and they called prakriti by the name maya and maya is a terrible thing where you are like a butterfly a moth around a lamp and the only thing which you can get in maya is that you can get your wings burned out by the fire by the flame of that fire and then there is brahman for the wise people the people who wisen up and stop believing in maya they will go in meditation like shankaracharya and reach their crown chakra and reach brahman and that's the end of it this story according to the tantric tradition is only partly true and it is a story either in christianity where you say go to spirit away from matter or in buddhism or in hinduism or any other spiritual path for the case this story is very efficient pedagogically because it motivates people but it's not the real truth it's not the actual truth the only other major metaphysical system besides the tantric traditions of india and tibet that states this in a veiled form is of course the taoist tradition of china where the two polarities have been called the extreme yang and the extreme yin it's very delicate to use those because yang and yin in the far eastern philosophy have a lots of parallel meanings for example yang and yin as you learn in the second night of agama courses also means the left side and the right side of prakriti the left side and the right side of prakriti i'll call yang and yin like solar and lunar the upper half of prakriti and the lower half of prakriti are also called yang and yin like cosmic and telluric so there are many parallel meanings to yang and yin but the ultimate one the metaphysical ultimate one is also that yang means heaven and yin means earth 
and they represent the father and the mother principle governing the universe. And from these two, through the trigrams and then through the hexagrams, there results the book of transformations, the I Ching, and all the reality is born from the mixture, from the dance, from the dialectic dance of yin and yang who generate the universe. So it's, it was, in, besides Tantra, it was only Taoism who said, wait a second, God is not yang. God is the yin and the yang together. And that should be called Tao. That's the Tao. Tao is the, so actually it is the Taoist who said it in their own language that God is spirit and matter. Matter is God as much as spirit is. There are two halves of it. The tantric tradition of India, which came first, because the Tibetan tantric tradition came only in the 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th century, so much, much later than the Indian one. The Indian tantric, and the Tibetans acknowledge it, this is no offense or of any kind. The Indian tantric tradition that started this thing had a different way of putting it. They called the father cosmos, prince, cosmic principle, Shiva, and they called the mother, the maternal nature principle, Shakti. And in this way, they didn't become enemies anymore because Shiva doesn't fight with Shakti. Shiva loves Shakti. Shiva penetrates Shakti. Shiva makes love to Shakti. Shiva dances with Shakti. And Shiva without Shakti is Shava, is a corpse, like in Shavasana. And Shakti without Shiva is just a blind force. It becomes just a blind, destructive force. So you always need to have both. An important text from the Tantric tradition says it clearly. No Shiva without Shakti, no Shakti without Shiva. They should always be kept together. The Kashmiri Shaivist texts which go eventually, Shiva is Shakti and Shakti is Shiva, and they are presented separately only for the human mind which needs duality, and therefore you need to, un to understand what this cosmic principle of division is. Therefore, the biggest thing is that the Tantric tradition, together with what is left from the Taoist tradition, but the Tantric tradition has gone hardcore on it, has redefined reality. And as I said, the old enemy, the old boogeyman called samsara or prakriti or maya is not a boogeyman at all. It's Shakti, the consort of Shiva, and is your cosmic mother. So instead of running like an idiot from Shakti, which you cannot because Shakti is eternal, created by the Tao, which divided itself in two. In India, in Kashmiri Shaivism, they don't call it Tao. They call it Anuttara, or sometimes Anuttara Paramashiva, to show that it's something even beyond the idea of Shiva. It's something which incorporates the Shiva and Shakti in a complete unit. So this unit, which divided itself in Shiva and Shakti, none of them is unreal. You cannot go to the yin-yang symbol and simply take one half out of it and say this is unreal. It cannot. The ultimate consciousness, the absolute, cannot create something unreal. Like exactly like Jesus says, a good tree 
produces good fruits and the bad tree produces bad fruits. The divine consciousness is a good tree. It can produce only good fruits. Therefore, any creation of the divine consciousness is automatically real. So the fact that Shankaracharya and Gaudapada, they declare that, oh, uh, nature is Maya and therefore unreal, is bullshit, philosophically speaking. It's just a white lie to motivate their students to run towards Sahasrara, to run towards the crown chakra, like spirit, 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 at all costs, quickly, quickly, desperately, urgently, now or never, because otherwise we are in trouble and Maya is going to swallow us mercilessly and we are going to get lost in samsara. Therefore, the tantric tradition reframes the whole story. It says God exists in every atom and particle of this matter and of this reality, and I'm talking about the subtle energies as well, as much as it exists in spirit. God is here and now. You don't have to go anywhere. The divine consciousness is this. What you see is the tip of the iceberg. But the tip of the iceberg is not separated from the iceberg. You see Shakti. You don't even all worlds, causal worlds. You see only a tiny part of Shakti. But what you see is Shakti. And Shakti is nothing else but the materialized part of God. It's the body of God. That's why the tantric texts say, look at the universe. The universe is the body of God. Imagine that you are a tiny ultra-microscopic being and you look and you see the molecules in the body of your owner. You are exactly like an infinitesimal creature looking and all you see is solar systems, molecules and atoms. And if you would be able to zoom back the camera, it's exactly like in those images where they zoom back the camera and you see the solar system, the galaxy, the meta-galaxies, and then there appears the iris of an eye. No, and you see just the eye of somebody. It's like everything is in the eye of God. Everything is a part. The universe is nothing else but the manifestation. It's the visible part. And with all the invisible worlds adjacent to it, like astral worlds, causal worlds, is just the manifested part of the divine. That's why the tantrics have changed the orientation of spirituality. They said you don't need to be afraid of Shakti. The only thing which you are afraid of is if you are deluded by Maya. Like the fact that you are just going around trying to get endlessly pleasure or money or ego boosting or something. And then one day you find yourself old and you screwed your life. You wasted your life. You frittered your life away. That was Maya. And it's simply like a sort of a test of intelligence. You know, like if you are too stupid... You don't see it and you wait to grow up. But if you wisen up a little bit, it doesn't mean you have to run from the world. It means you have to look again at the world. Everything which comes from the five senses, it's coming from God. For example, all the non-tantric religions will tell you that any pleasure of the senses becomes addictive. In yoga, they describe that as samskaras or vasanas, that you discover, you dis- de- develop addictive patterns of the mind, 
And even today, neurophysiology demonstrated that you have neurotransmitters. So for example, if any one of you is addicted to hot chocolate, you have neurotransmitters which love hot chocolate. And then the idea is, if you like hot chocolate so much, it's going in your subconscious mind, it's going to create some samskaras, which are like some scar tissue. It's going to create some samskaras in your astral and mental body. And two things will happen. When you will die, instead of praying to Jesus, you are going to think about that you could have had the last chocolate. And after you will be dead, that scar from your astral body is going to nag you constantly to come back here and to reincarnate and get a new human body so you can drink more hot chocolate. And therefore, the hot chocolate in all the ascetic religions is considered an enemy. So is sex. Buddha himself is quoted saying, it's one of the, it's quote from Buddha, which says, man, you stuck your penis into a vagina. It would have been better for you if you stuck it into a jar of burning coal. Why? What's so wrong with the vagina? There's no problem. The problem is that that man develops addiction to the sexual pleasure. And then even when he will die, he will think about sex. Even when he will be in the afterlife, he will think about sex. And he will want to come back to get a body to have more sex. Sex is an addiction, they are afraid. But the tantric tradition says you can go the other way around. Like, yes, that is right. The mechanism is described right. But what if you go the other way around? Like when you drink hot chocolate, you feel an intense pleasure. It's a real refined pleasure. And, or any other things. There are many, many things which can give you. You can extend it to sound pleasure, like you listen to a refined music. You can extend it to touch pleasure, like you are being caressed on your body. You can bring it to visual pleasure, like you see a beautiful sunset or a beautiful painting or something visual. Any pleasure of the five senses. Here I talk about the pleasure of Svadhisthana, a pleasure of the, of the sense of taste. You drink a cup of hot chocolate, and it's your addiction. It's delicious. But what if you zoom in it? Instead of running from it and saying, from today, no more hot chocolate because this is becoming an addiction. You take the hot chocolate and you drink it and you start meditating. I feel pleasure. Where does this pleasure? I mean, yes, from neurotransmitters, but that's a very materialistic thing. The reality doesn't stop at the brain, at the neurotransmitters. There must be some correspondence of this in the etheric, astral, mental, and causal levels of the universe. So I feel a pleasure. This pleasure is a little tiny bit of ecstasy. Like if I go to the kingdom of heaven, I expect there to hear angel music, to taste hot chocolates, to be like all the pleasures are supposed to be there. Like it's bliss, it's enchantment, right? You are supposed to be enchanted forever and ever. Otherwise, it's not worth it. So this Hot chocolate might not be paradise, but it's like 1% of paradise. It's a little bit. And when I drink it, so what if I zoom on it? I really focus on it. Instead of just drinking it, I keep it a few more seconds in my mouth. 
I taste it. And I zoom into it. It's exactly like what scientists did in the beginning of the 20th century. They discovered atoms. After they discovered atoms, they discovered protons, neutrons, and electrons. And when they discovered this, they tried to zoom deeper, and then it got really weird. Because as soon as they got to subatomic particles, like the electrons, there's the famous experiment described in the extended edition of What the Blip Do We Know, that documentary, which we play in the school now in a, once in a while, that there is a famous experiment where you make a transition of electrons, projecting electrons to two slides, and if that experiment is supervised by a person, it goes in one way, and if that experiment is not supervised by anybody and left unattended, it goes in another way. That has absolutely no scientific explanation. Like, why would electrons react to the presence of a conscious witness? It means electrons react to consciousness. It means electrons are connected to consciousness in some way. It means there exists a basic consciousness. That's why most of the quantum mechanics and gen that generation, Heisenberg, Schrödinger, Einstein, um, and many others, I can quote St. Georgi and many others, they were deeply religious people. And when people asked Werner Heisenberg, the father of the Nobel Prize winner, the father of the uh, principle of indetermination, they said, how can a scientist like you believe in God? He said, my dear, I don't believe in God. I'm a scientist. I know it for a fact. Like he said, I don't even need to believe. I have made research and I discovered God. I've looked at electrons and I've discovered God. I've discovered consciousness by looking at electrons. That's exactly what Tantra says. If you look into a cup of hot chocolate, you'll discover God. You are not careful at the five senses. The five senses are always taking you to God through Shakti. Shakti, your mother, hides in her bosom, like exactly like in the yin-yang symbol. In the middle of the yin, you have a droplet of yang. When you look deep into Shakti, you will find Shiva. Because Shiva is Shakti and Shakti is Shiva. And therefore, the tantric tradition says you don't need to run from the manifestation. There's nothing wrong in this manifestation. You are running from a boogeyman. Just focus on it and use it. Should we be afraid of Maya? The tantric tradition says we've got another suggestion to you. Pray to Maya. Because people say, but you know Maya, look at life. Look at life. Life is such an up and down and so on. So if you know that life is coordinated by Shakti, you live in samsara, you live in maya, then why don't you fall on your knees and say, Cosmic Mother, I know that you are Shiva. I know that you are pure consciousness. Make my life auspicious. I don't need to get kicks in my ass. I don't need, I hope, to get any painful lessons. I am wise enough to proceed with my evolution, which is my dharma, and which is the cosmic order. I can do this without any torture and pain. Torture and pain are not necessary for me. There are many people who are ignorant and stubborn, and they have to be kicked 
and beaten. They have to learn from pain. Everybody who diverts from the way of wisdom will get themselves sooner or later in pain because stubborn animals have to be taught with a stick. But I'm not a stubborn animal anymore. I am a seeker. So please be auspicious to me. Arrange all the causal stars and planets and make it in such a way that my life flows smoothly towards the goal. I don't need to have any bumps on the road. Why not do that instead of running from Maya like a desperate, which ultimately it's not even possible because where will you be when you will reach enlightenment? Maya is omnipresent. You haven't created Maya, therefore you, have, you cannot destroy Maya. Maya is the creation of Shiva, and only Shiva has authority over that level of existence. And that's why the tantric tradition is going, is creating different methods. For example, the tantric tradition considers that you can reach to enlightenment through the physical body. Most of the other religions hate the physical body and consider it an animal made of flesh. Like Paul says in the Bible, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The tantrics don't admit to this. The tantrics, they say, your flesh is spirit as much as your spirit is spirit. Why do you degrade the flesh? Look into the flesh. Use the flesh. Make your flesh stand on its head. And then the flesh arouses your sahasrara, which is your spirit. The spirit is reachable via the flesh. Do asanas, do pranayama, do mudras, do bandhas. And the flesh is going to become a very useful instrument. And with the flesh you are going to find samadhi. Therefore, the tantric tradition is body-oriented, while most of the other traditions are reluctantly ever doing something to the body or with the body. The tantric tradition loves energy. In all the other traditions, if you have too much energy, if you are buoyant, that's an obstacle. Imagine that I feel the energy like I'm with 100,000 volts and I want to hop like a ball for four hours nonstop and I have to sit and do meditation without moving. Makes, it freaks me out. It drives me crazy. And I can do it if I have self-discipline and willpower, but it's going to be a terrible torture I have to stop eating for three days or something, so I kind of dull myself down a little bit. And like I have to mortify myself, because so then energy is not good. As soon as I have energy, look at the children. Children hop all the time. You can't hold them. Even when people come with children here, the children run around. You know, they always seem to be disturbing and so on. Parents are afraid that they will disturb and so on. That buoyant energy, if you do a mass in the church, can't have children running around and yeah, 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 doing things, right? Because they spoil the sobriety of the moment. So therefore, this buoyant energy is like not good. It's not right right now. We can't have it. Tantra is wonderful. It says you've got energy, start hopping for God. You know, get your kundalini up and get your kundalini up like a gazer, you know, push it through your crown chakra, and then it's going to be okay. The more energy you have, the more quickly you are going to reach the Shiva consciousness. The energy is your shuttle. 
The energy is your train to enlightenment. It's just that you have to learn to channelize it. Because if it goes chaotic in all directions, it's all over the place, it can't serve. But if it's focused, it can serve. The tantric tradition is very good with emotions. Like all the traditions say any emotion is a perturbation. It disturbs you. Any emotion is an illusion. You should be completely stone-faced, you know, like not happy, not sad, not... The tantric traditions say, try to remember when you're really, really motivated for something, when you had enthusiasm, when you had... Everything was easy. It's easy to turn vegetarian. It's easy to do hours of asanas. It's easy not to sleep in the night. It's easy to... When you have the emotion for it. So the emotions are a formidable force. The only problem is that most people have chaotic emotions and in Kali Yuga very impure and negative emotions and they also don't control them at all. And then people are afraid of emotions. But the Tantric tradition is not. The Tantric tradition say when you have emotions, it means you have a lot of energy in your astral body, in your third body, and you could use it. No, like for... And you could use it anyway in a divine way. People are confused because they say, how do you use a negative emotion? Let's say I have love for God. I love God and this makes me do 20 hours of yoga per day. I'm devoted to the bones. That's clear. Everybody understands that one. But let's say I'm afraid. I'm paranoid. Here is a solution if any one of you suffers from chronic fear. Go to a place where you will decide that you are going to be buried when you die. And then draw a rectangle of two meters by one meter, which will be exactly your grave, and start imagining very clearly that you are going to be buried there tomorrow. And you are going to have dust in your hand, in your mouth. That you are going, your body, you are going to be claustrophobically squashed under two meters of earth, and you are going to have the worms eating out of your flesh, and you will be compressed and completely squashed, and you are dead, and you cannot breathe. That, fe that fear will make you do tons of yoga and meditation because you are going to get so horrified that you will want to save your soul and reach immortality immediately. So you can use your fear, but you have to know where to put it. Don't put the fear that the whole world is against you and you are paranoid. That's useless. That takes you to the mental hospital. Take your fear and transform it into fear of death. Fear of death is one of the best motivators for spiritual practice. Many people postpone thinking about death. No, go and think about death and not abstractly, intellectually, concretely. Here is where I'm going to eat dust tomorrow, maybe, if I have a heart attack tonight. Tomorrow, can I take it? Let me imagine organically that I am buried. I'm put in a sack and thrown in a hole and then they dump earth over me. How does that feel? No, can you confront that? It, and it's irreversible. That's it. Many people would go totally frantic when, this, when they do this meditation. And then what will you do? You'll go home and meditate big time. Then you will say, my gosh, you know, forget about my university degree. I first have to reach some immortality, you know, because like if I die without that one, I'm fucked. You know, it's like this is what I want. Then that will show you the real priorities in your life. Therefore, emotions are 
very nice in Tantra and you should use them. Use them. You have to learn to use them, of course. The mind. Oh, leave your mind at the entrance. Throw all your books. That's not a tantric statement. That's from Vedanta. That's from classical yoga. In Tantra, we love the mind. The problem is that most people think rubbish. So if you have a mind, which is a God-given gift, make your mind think the right things. No, you know that in the secret, the video, the secret, it says if you imagine that you are driving your Mercedes in five years, you'll get it. If you imagine you have a villa, you'll get it. That's right. Maybe it's a bit idealistically made there, but still it's right. The power of the mind is colossal. So why don't you see yourself as a Buddha? Why don't you see yourself enlightened? Why don't you use your mind to always think about your salvation? Why don't you use your mind to always think about God? There is an anonymous proverb, which I have on a magnet on my fridge, which says, uh, it has been said that you become what you think. Then, think God. Indeed, you become what you think. Then why not think God? Then you'll become God. It's lovely. It's as simple as that. All the great truths are simple. So the mind is not a problem. The mind is a problem when, only when it does stupid things. But when you control it and you tell it what to do, you put a carrot in front of it and you say, keep focusing on this, then the mind is perfectly okay. You just have to keep it busy. That's why we want you here that when you are not in yoga classes, you should go to bhajan. And when you are not in bhajan, you should go to anahata meditation. And when you are not in anahata meditation, you should go to the spiritual cinema club. And when you are not in the spiritual, because you are wanting to run out there and surf on internet and read some stupid news and think shit. Because your mind is addicted to shit. The mind is addicted to negative resonances. And from time to time, you want to roll through the mud. You take a pig and you wash it. And then as soon as the pig finds a pool of mud, it rolls through it. Because for the pig, the mud is... If your mind is a little bit of a pig, your mind loves the mud from time to time. Don't underestimate this. It is there. Everybody has it. And that's why it takes years and years to kill the samskaras of the pig from your mind. To kill the habits of the mind in which the mind dabbles into misery. In which the mind dabbles into negativity. In the famous management, self-help management book, called The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. Anybody who does yoga and wants to do business should read that book. The teacher, who is supposedly a big lawyer, businessman turned monk, he's teaching the hero. It's a parable written by Robin Sharma in Canada. Is a book about how to apply spiritual things and mind control in business. And in one of the lessons from there, the teacher tells to the pupil, you, if you develop a business, one of the rules of it, it is that it is not allowed for you for a minute to think that you are going to fail. If you see yourself failing, it's not good. And the guy says, uh, but how can I? I mean, this sounds as a superhuman demand. I'm a human after all. What do you mean not for a minute to think that I will fail? And the teacher says, yes, not for a minute to think that you are going to fail. The people who have succeeded 
are like that. That's why successful entrepreneurs and other people like that are people with a very special mind. You may think bad about sharkish capitalists like Warren Buffett or something, but remember, it takes something to reach to be where Warren Buffett is. Not a normal person cannot because a normal person shoots themselves in the foot by thinking crap from time to time. Warren Buffett is there because he didn't think crap. He had had an exceptional focusing on the goal and not for a second he has allowed negative thoughts to come in the mind. The same is valid for smaller things in life. You are running on a motorbike to Tongsala and suddenly there comes an image in your mind where you see yourself squashed by a, or hitting a truck or rolling over with your motorbike and full of blood. Instantaneously you have to wipe out that method in the mind and to say I refuse this demonic thought. I see myself arriving in Tongsala, healthy, happy, smiling, and you should see yourself. Today is going to be one of the best days of my life. Like, Don't let your mind give you crap because your mind can give you crap because you have a karma. And then you really fall and you say, oh, it happened because I thought a wrong thought. No, it was your karma before that and your karma made you think that wrong thought. But you could stop it. You could nip it in the bud. Does it mean you are going to cancel your karma? No, you're just going to postpone it. At least it's not going to happen today. And that gives you another 10 years to deal with it, which is good. So control your mind. In Tantra, we don't say throw your mind to the dustbin. In Tantra, we say use your mind. It's a divine instrument by which you can conquer the universe. The mind is a gift from God. This is what the gods have and you don't. The gods have a formidable mind by which they can imagine universes. The gods have a mind by which they can create circumstances and alter them. And they have control over that. They can dream cosmic dreams without flaw. That's the mind which you need to have. So I made it clear for you that the tantric tradition recommends therefore different methods. Sometimes radically different methods. And that of course causes sometimes strife and contradiction. Like you drink hot chocolate and your colleagues from the nearby monastery avoid hot chocolate. They are going to tell about you that you are a glutton and that you are listening to the teachings of a perverted teacher who is teaching you some cheap gluttonry just because you, he tells you what you want to hear actually and uh, it's actually not a way. Therefore, remember that the tantric tradition is peculiar and not always understood. Not only in its sexual aspect. Its sexual aspect is particularly irritating for the outsiders of tantra. But in everything, the tantric tradition looks into another way. Into another way. The Vedanta Institute, the, the, the Ramakrishna Vivekananda Vedanta Mission, which Swami Vivekananda built in India to continue the teachings of his guru Ramakrishna, they teach Vedanta. And many people have said, why shouldn't we go and learn yoga from the Ramakrishna mission, from the Ramakrishna school, because at least that's a reliable, gigantic yogi. And they went there and they said, we'd like to start with some Hatha yoga. You know the answer which they received there, which is still given, I suppose. 
Hatha yoga is detrimental to your spiritual evolution. That's what Vedantics really say, honestly. Because they think that if you develop your body harmoniously, you are going to get attached to your body and to samsara. And you are not going to think about Brahman. And you are going to just get trapped in Maya. Therefore, the methods of different yogas are simply sometimes incompatible with each other. So opposite they are. In Tantra, we do Hatha Yoga and we tell you that it's going to save your soul. And in Vedanta, they say it can be detrimental to your very evolution. Now, who's right? Both are right, but depends which path you are following. It's not the same methodology on both paths. To conclude this presentation, because of Tantra is actually the right angle, this is the holistic approach. I hope I made my point clear that that's God's truth. This is the complete picture, not the other one which is a skewed white lie. And it works, but it's not the actual truth. Because of this, in spirituality, there have emerged many hybrid forms of spirituality that copy some parts of Tantric Yoga. For example, if let's look at Bhakti. Many, many world religions are based on Bhakti. Islam, in particular, the Sufi part of Islam, Christian mysticism, when it is properly done, some of the mysticism in Judaism, some forms of Bhakti Yoga religions from Hinduism, where like Krishna, Krishna devotionalism and other forms of devotionalism, they are bhakti. In bhakti yoga, what do you do? You actually take one energy as good. All the energies are not good. All the emotions are not good. All the thoughts are not good, except one. The love for Jesus Christ. The love for God. What's so special about that one? I mean, that's just picking up one energy, one chakra, one aspect among many. So we can say that actually Christianity, Bhakti Yoga in Christianity, is a partial form of Tantra. It's a very mutilated form of Tantra. All the Bhakti Yoga in this world is a form of Tantra. Compare it with some others. You go to a Vipassana retreat in Chom Tong, and after many days of meditation, you tell to your teacher, today I have just witnessed a great love suddenly. And your teacher turns it down completely. He says, yeah, that's just another vritti of the mind. Call it. See, call it by the name. Naming, naming, naming. Like we, It's not, a Christian would say, are you killing love? Are you telling to this guy to stay away from love? Are you crazy? Are these people considering love an illusion? This is heresy because in Christianity love is God. How can you reconcile? Because these people have no, like they want to be totally dry. There is no tantric part in it. Not even anahata. Not even love. And these people are using a part of samsara. They say we don't want Manipura. We don't want Zvadhisthana. We don't want Ajna. But a little bit of Anahata is okay. Not even all of Anahata. Because the lower part of Anahata is about Kama. It's about sen sexual sensuality. And that we don't want. So when you make the prayer of the heart, you have to inhale and draw the breath only in the upper part of your heart. Because there is a part of the heart chakra which is too sensual. And we can't have monks and nuns be too sensual. 
Like it's really selecting a slice of it, which you declare this one is kosher. This one is okay, you can have it. And the same is valid in others, in karma yoga. Why should there exist karma yoga? If the whole universe is a maya, then why should you do any karma yoga? Let the whole universe fall apart. Who wants to do any karma yoga? Like, screw it, you know? There's no, why should I create a dream in a dream? What's the purpose? I don't want to do any of this, no? But still karma yoga is present in almost all the spiritual path. Either it's called seva, or it's called karma yoga, or it's called selfless service in the West, or religious service, or it's there, which is an, another slice, which suddenly it's good. Suddenly it's okay, but only a very selected part. That's, and many religions practice these kinds of hybrids. So the funny thing is that Tantra is not completely alien to the religious spirit, but very few people have dared to take it in its totality, like all of it. Now, this being said, and when I explain to you what Tantric Yoga is, the philosophy of it, and why Tantric Yoga is so different, and that's what we do here in Agama, we're basically a Tantric school, I'm going to say to use the next 20 minutes until we fulfill our two hours, or maybe 30 minutes because we started a bit late, I'm going to uh, tell you a little bit about what is Agama Yoga. Agama Yoga is a particular type of Tantric Yoga. It is a special blend, like it is our own proprietary band, blend of forms of Tantric Yoga, because within Tantric Yoga, there exist many orientations. The name Agama Yoga has been suggested to me by one of my gurus who at that time was living in Rishikesh called Shankar Baba because he told his opinion, this was a great, great master, very anonymous, very discreet person. I don't even know if he's alive anymore. He moved in those days. He ran up in the Himalayas. This teacher simply said what you teach, this kind of thing which you teach is this is basically full fitting with the spirit of the Agamas. So he was the one who recommended use Agama Yoga. I want to share with you, first of all, a few meanings of the name Agama. You are in a school called Agama. We are teaching Agama Yoga. What really the word means? In Hindu, in Hindi, where in the Hindu tradition, actually in Sanskrit, Agama means in the Hindu context, a traditional doctrine or system which commands faith. The Kashmirian Shaivists, they don't call the texts of their tradition Tantras. They also call them Tantras. They are familiar with the name, but they prefer to call them Agamas. So we can say that uh, Geranda Samhita is a Tantra, or we can also say that Geranda Samhita is an Agama. But they are Agama of the Shiva tradition. So the Agamas... Then you could say, Swami, if Agama is almost the same as Tantra, then you can say that the Tantric tradition is the Agamic tradition. And then Agama Yoga would mean Tantra Yoga. So why didn't you just call it Tantra Yoga? Simply because the name Tantra Yoga is already compromised and adulterated by too much use, and it would have been not appropriate. So Agama Yoga is much more on the academic, esoteric part, and that's why we kept that name. The Agamas are the primary source and authority for yoga methods and instruction. All the things which come from yoga, they are first of all written in an Agama. 
either in the Mahanirvana or in the Kaularnava or in the Vijnana Bhairava or in the Shiva Samhita or one of them. They're all of them coming from the Agamas. That's where we get the knowledge. I did not invent the fact that, uh, I don't know, Danurasana is purifying the nadis of the body. This is written in the Geranda Samhita. It is written in the texts of the tradition. We are just following those texts. Of course, there is a lot of oral tradition besides the text, because the text cannot cover everything, but the backbone is always in the Shastras, the sacred texts of the tradition. So we can say that Agamas, if you want academically, they are a non-Vedic collection of Sanskrit scriptures which are revered and followed by millions of Hindus. Non-Vedic. There is always a trouble in India if you are Vedic or non-Vedic. And uh, Vedanta and other people, they have taken the cream of the cake and they say they represent the Vedas. The Tantric tradition, they are Tantric texts. I'm not, uh, it's not an oral thing. It's written in Tantric texts which says, the tantras exist in the Vedas as the flavor exists in a flower. Like maybe you don't see them because you are ignorant, but what we say in the tantras is extracted from the Vedas. It was in a discreet way present there already. And in India, there exist Shaiva Agamas for the yogis who follow the path of Shiva. There exist Vaishnava Agamas for those who follow the path of worship of Vishnu. There exists Shakta Agamas for the worshippers of Shakti. According to the greatest teacher of Kashmiri Shaivism, Abhinava Gupta in the 10th century, and this is a very elevated, like I'm going to read it and you are going to probably lose at least 80% of it. Abhinava Gupta always writes at a different level of consciousness simply. And his statements have to be chewed for a long time. But I just write it for your subconscious mind. Even if you don't keep it all, your subconscious mind will have it somewhere. So Agama, which means, according to Abhinava Gupta, divine speech that forms the life of the other means of knowledge, like speaking, writing, everything which is a means of knowledge, everything through which you write, it is substantiated by the divine speech. The divine speech in the Christian tradition is called Logos, like the Word. In the beginning there was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word. That Word, which is in Greek called Logos, is in, uh, exists in the Sanskrit tradition. And Abhinava Gupta says, this is what Agama means. It is an equivalent for this divine logos. They call it Shabda Brahman, or actually in the Tantric tradition, Vak. Vak, like in Vak Siddhi, which you learn about in the Satya lecture in the first level of Agama. Vak, the speech. So this Agama is the internal activity of pure consciousness. It's like the voice of God. It's like how God talks to himself, how Shiva talks to Shakti. It's the inner voice inside the divine. It basically consists in a firm hold of consciousness and owes its name to that it allows one to know the object under all its aspects, whence the word Agama. Therefore, it is called an Agama, an ensemble of such holds of consciousness or convictions, beliefs, expressed in words. Yet the tantric tradition 
acknowledges that the agamas trigger strong beliefs only under special circumstances in certain epochs and places, only to the people who are qualified for understanding and applying them and who give them credit, believing in their teachings. Otherwise said, probably Geranda Samhita has been published in 100,000 copies since 1905 until today. How many people practice the asanas according to the Geranda Samhita? You have to, you, if you read it from a library, it usually doesn't click. You come to a yoga school and the teacher gives it to you, suddenly it's a different condition. It's exactly like a seed that can sprout only in the right conditions. If in the wrong conditions, it doesn't. The Agama traditions have been the source of early yogic and self-realization concepts in India. They have influenced thinkers and philosophers who sought an alternative to the excessive ritualism and sacrifices of the Vedic system of that time. You can see statements like in Shiva Samhita, it simply says, uh, the Vedas and the Puranas are like common public women, while this Shambhavi Mudra, one technique of yoga, the Shambhavi Mudra with a ping pong ball, those of you who are in the first level, you'll learn it very soon, Monday, the, while this Shambhavi Mudra is like a precious treasure that should be kept, uh, it compares, it makes a difference between public women and a lady, according to the traditional Hindu society. Basically, the the Shiva Samhita, a provocative tantric text, says if you should go alone on an island like Robinson Crusoe for the rest of your life, you shouldn't take the Vedas and the Puranas because they are good not for you. Take Shambhavi Mudra, just one technique from Geranda Samhita and do it every day. That will give you more results than reading all the Vedas and the Puranas. That's the tantric tradition. Provocative, practical. They say all those old things are outdated. They are written in other yugas for people with different brains and different backgrounds. Now the modern man needs this, and they come with those. So the agamas are also known as tantras. There are agamas in the Jain tradition. They are canonical texts of Jainism based on Mahavira's teachings. In Buddhism, an agama, which is the Sanskrit and Pali for sacred work or scripture, is the collection of early Buddhist scriptures which were preserved primarily in the Chinese tradition with substantial material also surviving in Sanskrit and more in Gandhari and Tibetan. In the Malay language from Malaysia, the word Agama literally means religion. In Greek, it means no gender, like no sex. Ah, gamma, gametos are the sexual, the gametes are the sexual glands. So Agama, no gender. So here you understand that Agama is an extremely beautiful name. I didn't know all these meanings when it was recommended that I should put the name to the school by, again, one of my teachers. But this name is brilliant in so many ways. It's one of the most spiritual names, and it illustrates so well the tantric tradition and all the divine connections. That's why we are very happy that we have been given this mantle to do to start Agama Yoga, to have Agama Yoga. And uh, in here in Agama Yoga, we have blended several types of Tantric Yoga. Just for your knowledge to know, as you go through Agama Yoga, you will see them. The first style of Tantric Yoga that we have here strongly represented is belonging to a school of India which is called Nata Sampradaya. This is a school which is created by Matsyendra Nata, 
this final part is the, the, the title, Matsyendra Nath, or Natha, and his disciple was Goraksha, Goraksha Nath. So from there, all the yogis in this lineage, they called themselves something with Nath, Adi, Nath, and others, and others, and the school itself got to be known as Nata Sampradaya. Nata Sampradaya existed mostly in Assam and Bengal in the eastern part of India. Unfortunately, today it is very, very decadent. If you go, if you travel to India, you are see some people who are not yogis or who pretend to be not yogis. There are many of those. They smoke hash heavily. They are doped all day long. And their recognition sign is that they split their ear lobes and they have a big wooden thing inside their both ear lobes. If you see somebody with big wooden stuff as earrings in their ear lobes, those are, and they are usually going dressed in black, not in orange or something. So the Nata Sampradaya is the original, it's the original part of Indian yoga, which has come with Hatha Yoga, Asanas, Pranayama, Bandhas and Mudras, Kundalini and the knowledge of Kundalini. They had, part, they had in their lore a heavy part about healing. Hatha Yoga Pradipika and other texts of their tradition, they, were, they have chapters consecrated to healing. That is the beginning of healing in yoga. They were very, very friendly to Ayurveda, like they often talk about excess of vata, excess of kapha, excess of this and that, how to correct it and so on. So they have a very, very good link with Ayurveda. They also have a strong tradition in alchemy. They thought that in the moment when the body fluids and the energies are being sublimed properly, the human being can produce paranormal effects of alchemical nature, going to the point where you, for example, do some sublimation and then you pee on a piece of iron and it turns into gold. From the mixture of the energy, urine, your urine, which is special in that condition, and other such things. So they practiced alchemy. There is an alchemical Indian tradition. They practiced forms of shamanism because they are tantric. They looked into the lower spirits of nature and how to cooperate with the lower spirits of nature. And sometimes they were doing actually forms of magic and witchcraft as well. And that's the Nata Sampradaya. We are not very much into this shamanic witchcraft things. But uh, the part of Hatha Yoga with healing with Ayurveda, Kundalini, this is a part which is fully represented here. Together with this, the second major tantric orientation which we managed to acquire in this school is the Kaula tradition. The Kaula tradition is a tradition which the British destroyed in India because the Kaulas were one of the last surviving sexual tantric schools of India. The Kaula means the inner circle or the family. These people were having ashrams where 50 people lived and or something, 100 people or 20 people, and those people were like a sort of open sex community. They were having like a sort of polyamorous community. They were doing collective sexual rituals, sexual practices, circles, and so on. From them, there come most of the sexual texts of the Indian tradition, Kaularnava Tantra, even Mahanirvana Tantra, Kaulagyana Nirnaya, and others, Yoni Tantra, and a few others. And this, from this part, we got both the initiations about the Shakta Tantric sexual tradition as well as the Mahavidya tradition. This was very, these were very great worshippers of Shakti 
and they were the ones who preserved the worship of the ten great cosmic powers, the ten Shaktis, which are part of the system here in Agama. So this is Shaktism, sexual Tantra. Here you find mantras, yantras, rituals, and stuff like this. This is something which we also managed to keep. The third great pillar of what we have here in Agama is the famous Trika, or the Kashmiri Shaivism, which is really, really rare. And this is the cherry on top of the cake. This is the highest and most metaphysical part of all Tantra. It flourished, as the name says it, in Kashmir. Kashmir was blessed by God starting with the 8th century with the birth of some gigantic spirits there. Some enormous yogis lived, and they lived in a sequence, so they became disciples of one each other. Abhinavagupta in the 10th century is considered to have been an avatar of Shiva, which there is none other in all the in history of India. The only person ever credited with this glory to be an avatar of Shiva. And in the chaotic India of 10th century, Abhinavagupta was nevertheless declared the head of all the tantric schools of India. Nobody since Abhinavagupta had this honor ever before or after him. Abhinavagupta was a total giant, and this was a blessing on Kashmir that they had such spirits born there. And these spirits developed a tradition, which if I start now talking, I'll go raving for 15 minutes minimum about it. It's a tradition which is creme de la creme. There is nothing anywhere in the any world tradition, and believe me, I say this because I've studied this, there is nothing which compares to Kashmiri Shaivism. Like Kashmiri Shaivism goes to places where none else. You may think that Vedanta, Advaita Vedanta, Patanjali, Dzogchen, Anuttara Yoga Tantra, all of them, and it's demonstrable, you know, I'm always a person who can talk with the reasonable arguments about things. There are arguments which don't belong to me. They are given by Kshemaraja in the 11th century already, which show very, very clearly this amazing thing. Kashmiri Shaivism is our secret core. Ultimately, you can say that Agama is a school of Kashmiri Shaivism because that's where it goes. But it uses the props of Hatha Yoga Kundalini and all those Mahavidya tradition, Kaula Tantra, and all those, those are our stepping stones to Kashmiri Shaivism, because Kashmiri Shaivism or Trika is something of a very, very elevated, amazing, divine nature. So this is based on metaphysics, on the most divine philosophy. This is the top rung of the ladder. And here in Agama, when you reach to the level of advanced teachings, which is the fourth level of our teachings, not the fourth level, the fourth big stage of teachings, that's at least 50% of what those people study with me. When I meet with my advanced pupils in the advanced teachings, at least 50% of the contents of that is Trika, is Kashmiri Shaivas. Because we don't want to leave people completely unaware of this, we organize during the year usually one Kashmiri Shaivism, at least, workshop, so that even people who are more in the beginning, they can have a glimpse of what is to come. Like, we can give you a bit of a glimpse into Kashmiri Shaivism, so you know approximately what it is about, and even show you some technologies from Kashmiri Shaivism, which even beginners 
can try and practice. That's the third major pillar. All these three forms of yoga, Nata, Sampradaya, Kaula, and Trika, they are fully represented in this school. We have some influences from the classical forms of yoga, like from Patanjali's yoga, from Bhagavad Gita, from uh, Vedantic forms of yoga and teachers like Ramakrishna, Swami Shivananda. There are many of these teachers who are our spiritual heroes and we have photos of them. I wish we had more photos, but anyway, it will come with time. Like we have a lot of spiritual heroes in our uh, yoga history, which we sympathize very much here in Agama. And uh, we have taken some influences for them. It's impossible not to be touched by the message of Ramakrishna or not to be touched by the message of the Bhagavad Gita or other and other such things. Also, because of a particular thing which comes from me, this is a personal thing uh, which has kind of colored uh, things which are in the school. I had always a great inclination towards the Tibetan spirituality. Do I feel so? This is my perception of it due to some of my previous lives in that area. And I have a great inclination towards Tibetan spirituality. Out of the Tibetan spirituality, not necessarily Tibetan Buddhism, which is the external part of it, but the Tibetan yoga, which is the esoteric part of it. That's why since a young age I was concerned about Tibetan yoga. I tried practices of Tibetan yoga. When I lived in different countries, I met with Tibetan lamas and I took some teachings from them some years ago, quite a few years ago. I traveled to Tibet when I lived in India. I was also in contact with some of the Tibetan lamas and exchanged teachings. When then I traveled to Tibet and I compared some of the teachings and some of the technologies. So in this way, uh, I'm having, we are having here quite a bit of access to Tibetan yoga and sometimes we are teaching things from Tibetan yoga. For example, when pupils do uh, the, the tapas, their tapas for Ajna Chakra, I'm also initiating them in the five Dhyani Buddhas, which are part of the Dzogchen system and Kala Chakra system as well. And we are get, they are getting the initiation in Kala Chakra Tantra, which is a Tibetan teaching concerning the king of the world and more than that. We are having influences of Tibetan yoga in our workshops like the art of dying. In the art of dying, the most precise method for exiting the soul out of the body in the moment of death is actually not an Indian method. The Indians have somehow lost it along the centuries, so they don't have it in a clear form. But the method has been preserved by the Tibetans under the name of pova, or the transference of consciousness. So, of course, when we teach the art of dying, we teach pova, because that is uh, essential for the so-called art of dying. This year, we are even having a full workshop of Tibetan yoga, where we make a synthesis of all the methods of them, and there we teach. Of course, we cannot teach all the Tibetan yoga in five days, but we define the ten main directions of Tibetan yoga, and we teach some of the real relevant practices, including the Tumo practices from the six yogas of Naropa, uh, because that's one of the basics, and it is very much like our Kundalini yoga. It's uh, a direct brother, a direct sister or relative of the Kundalini yoga forms from India. And uh, another characteristic of Agama is that we have openness to other forms of spirituality, 
simply because we have a metaphysical understanding. We are not disturbed by dogmatic theological strife, people telling us that my God is smarter than your God or my God is bigger than your God. And that's why we look freely into the esoteric parts of Christianity, like either Jesus was a nobody, or if Jesus was somebody, then what he said, it must have a metaphysical meaning, not only a doctrinal and dogmatic meaning. So we are looking into the message of Jesus, we are looking into the mysticism of Rumi, and we understand how did he invent the whirling dance, why whirling around your own axis can activate your kundalini, and if you rise that energy, it can even produce higher states of consciousness, and so on. So because of this, we are open, and we have here people coming with things. Uh, we are not open that much as we go into the New Age madness. I am a rabid opponent of the New Age spirituality because it has become total insanity. It's uh, just a license to hysteria. And when you go to some alternative fair in whichever big city of the world, approximately, I can quote it from the reaction of one of my friends. I had a friend in, when I was living in Copenhagen who was a millionaire engineer driving a red Porsche and having a swimming pool in the basement of his house. And uh, I took him to an alternative fair where he would have never gone by himself. And he kind of walked with very circumspect Danish eyes to the whole thing. And he found some nice uh, shoe taps, which if you broke them, they became warm, you know, some chemical gadget or something, which was really to his liking as an engineer, you know, like that an engineer could tolerate. And then after we finished the tour, he looked, he didn't know if he should tell me like he didn't know how much I am into these things. And then he told me, you know, he said, like with a very reserved voice, he said, I hope you realize that approximately 90% of what's in this hall is totally baloney. No? And I said, yes, Finn, I realize. It's like, we all know. You know, everybody who is rational knows that today the so-called alternative thing is full of crazy people. It's full of crazy people and full of hysterical, fake, weird things. Uh, therefore, we are open, but not open to madness. That means we are open to the forms of spirituality which are metaphysically and verified by time. You know that there are sects which believe that if you cut your testicles, your soul is going to the Hale-Bob comet and the aliens will save it. If you believe in that and want to put your testicles on the table, it's fine by me. But we don't do these things in Agama. We are not for cults, bizarre, absurd things. We are not for suicide cults or anything like that. And of course, in Agama, because we are modern people, we have a scientific and rational approach. Many of our teachers do research. They go on internet. They consult medical studies, scientific studies. They always want to bring further and further evidence to the things and that's why we try to keep, although yoga is a mystical thing, and there is a flavor, there are some magic things to yoga which you can't really describe. And some of them, you wonder when, how many centuries will it take before science will really see these things. Nevertheless, there are many, many things which can be, at least you can have some correspondences of some logical and rational thing and see that they make sense. And that's why we love this very much. We have, therefore, a yoga which contains energies, sublimation. We, have, we use the chakras, the channels of energy, 
we use the five bodies, we use mantras, yantras, we have the use of the sexual energy, we didn't brush it under the carpet. It's not compulsory, this sexual yoga, it's only for those who want to try it and so on. So this is a picture of Agama Yoga in the context of Tantric Yoga. Tantric Yoga is the bigger thing and there are many forms of Tantra. Some of you can go to Nepal or to Tibet and then some Lama will teach you Tantra and there will be no other bit of sex. For them, for some of them, it's not all of it, but for some of them Tantra can mean that you visualize a deity and you use a mantra. That's Tantra also because Mantra, Yantra, Tantra. When you use visualization and mantras, that's Tantra. So there are many, many things to Tantra. The Tantric tradition is a very big thing. Here in Agama, we cannot say that we have everything of the Tantric tradition. There is, for example, a part of the Tantric tradition that deals with Hindu astrology. It starts from Svara Yoga, which is a real Tantric branch of yoga, and from there it goes into Hindu and Vedic astrology. I personally am not very knowledgeable about that, and I don't do that because I simply consider that I won't need that, that I can manage with the education and with the spiritual things without that. So in Agama, we don't have all of the Tantric tradition, but we have those things which are mentioned there and which form a pretty coherent whole. Those of you who stay in Agama or who are new, ask the older pupils and you are going to see. Although there are so many things, it's not a salad. It's not just a chaotic, uh, we just jumped, ev dropped everything in a bucket and we just mingled it like this and now we are just putting one piece at a time. The system is coherent, it's organically grown, it's part of a system of evolution and you can be part of this. I'm not saying that you can decide tonight, that's not a lecture, it's not a sale pitch tonight. It's just I'm, we, I'm telling you what Agama is. In time, with experience, you are going to see if it's for you. Maybe Agama Yoga is not down your alley, maybe it's not your baby. Therefore, uh, you know, you can try it for a month, for three months. You can come a month now, a month next year, a month next year, a little bit now and then, as it fits you. But the point being that we know it and you can see, look around, yeah? That's why it is happening what the way it's happening, because people actually love it. There are many, many forms of yoga which have turned into gymnastics and superficiality. There are many forms of yoga who try to give spirituality to their gymnastics. They have gymnastics and they don't know what to do with it. And then they try to bring spirituality by bringing you some Vedic, Vedantic, Hindu mysticism. They think that if they make you say Om or practice celibacy and be a Brahmachari in the Hindu way or bow down to Vishnu or sing some bhajans for Krishna, that has made the yoga, that, that has made their gymnastics spiritual. That's uh, completely, it's like you are mixing two completely different things. In Agama, these things are organically there. That's why it's a system which works and people are coming and they are because they are getting results people will always we if we'd be able to put together all the testimonials given to people would make volumes of it and that's why as some of our ttc graduates said at least i love agama as the best thing which has happened to me agama yoga but many people would say at least this much is true agama yoga is probably one of the best forms of yoga in the world so it's, um, it's a peculiar form of yoga and it's a rare. 
I had pupils who were a bit uh, irked by me. There are people who have authority problems. And the fact that I sit there here on my big ass and you are sitting a bit uh, 50 centimeters lower, for some mysterious reason, some of the people who have an ugly Manipura chakra, they feel provoked by this for some mysterious reason. Some people have authority conflicts. And there are some people who simply say, I don't like the ugly face of Swami, you know, because simply because he's a father figure and an authority figure. That's your projection, of course. You are having psychological problems, so deal with them. But the point being that there have been, and there are always such people, there are probably in the hall as well such people, not to mention that the sexual rumors and this, they are aggravating it way more. And then there, are, there were such people, and they left the school without saying a word, of course, because you don't have to say anything just because you come here for a while and then you go. And then they came after two years, and they booked a personal interview with me, and they said, Swami, I have to tell you something. I don't like you at all. And, and for two years, I've been traveling throughout India, Nepal, and everywhere, trying to find the yoga school which teaches something closely, even, even remotely comparable to what you teach here. And I didn't find. So I came with a tail between my legs. I still don't like you, but I'm going to just hold it to myself and I'm going to participate to the classes because there is no place in this world where I can learn what I learned here. I know it from direct feedback from people who didn't like me and they didn't have any interest to do me any favor or to flatter Agama or me in any way. We know we are a very rare school in this world. I'm not saying we are the only one. Maybe that guy didn't search carefully. Maybe there would be others. But, uh, I mean, although quite exactly this blend you won't find anywhere else because it's a proprietary blend. But nevertheless, um, Agama is pretty unique in what it teaches and based on the tantric tradition. I hope this gave you tonight an understanding of where the philosophy of the whole thing starts from, why we are different, that being different is not wrong because actually our tradition is not invented by me. It's old and very solid. There is a metaphysical foundation that, yes, you know, you can do yoga with hot chocolate and with sunsets and with sex and with a lot of other things, with a physical body. You can keep your physical body and cultivated, you can use your, you can have a buoyant energy, you can have intense emotions, you can have a strong mind, and you can all yoke them all, to use a good word, to yoke them all to the purpose of your own thing. Either your goal is health, or a good daily life, or paranormal accomplishments, or spiritual realization. Agama Yoga is indeed a method which at least works and uh, you can hear it and see it. So I hope you understood where we come from, where is our tantric tradition. It's rare. Tantra is less than 5% of the world's spirituality is of a tantric type. There are historical reasons for which this happened, but I'm not going to go now into those. Ask me in questions and answers if you want more clarifications about this. And... Uh, we are not the only ones, but we are the stewards of this tradition. I, for one, will consider it a failure and a sad thing if my generation of teachers passes away and we didn't manage to pass it to the next generation of teachers and that some part of this tradition will be lost. It would be a pity because the yogis have invested hundreds of years of research 
in searching the human body and its reactions, find out what is happening and to come to some conclusions. And uh, this is invaluable knowledge which humanity should preserve one way or another. Not to mention that it's so brilliant in so many ways, like starting from the health itself, from healing and health itself. So it definitely shouldn't be lost. So that's the mission of us here in Agama. We are among the few ones that preserve the tantric tradition. We are teaching it with the hope that as many people will learn it. That's why we do teacher training programs, because we hope that as many people will become teachers of it and spread it wide and large, because uh, it's necessary to give this alternative. It is my dream that when you'll open the yellow pages, now they go obsolete with the internet, but let's use that metaphor, that when you open the yellow pages in any city of this world, you can find gymnastic yoga at the yoga chapter, but you can find at least one Agama Yoga teacher also in every city, so that people who are searching for something different than gymnastics, they can have access to it, and they cannot say, well, I was looking for something, but... It was not there. It is there. It's present on planet Earth. We are still alive and kicking, we who do these kinds of yoga, and uh, we'd like to be heard. We'd like to at least have this alternative available for those who are interested. Not many are interested. Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna who is a gigantic authority in spirituality, he tells to his disciple and friend Arjuna, O Arjuna, out of a thousand people, one is interested in doing something for their spiritual betterment. One in a thousand is a very low percentage. It's 0.1%. It's not a minority. It's an ultra minority in the society. But still, for that one person in a thousand, Agama has to be there to give them the alternative for which they are seeking. So um, that is... What we do in Agama, that's what Agama Yoga is. Um, as much theory as I'm pouring over you, it's still the practice which will show you exactly what's happening. So um, that's the challenge. I told you what you can expect, but practice until you start seeing it with your own eyes and feeling it. With this, we have finished for tonight. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.